Hey, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts is a, um, a second part to Luke, who was a physician, who we believe uh, traveled the world uh, getting eyewitness accounts about the life and the ministry of Jesus. There's a section in the book of Acts where um, a pronoun is used, we, so not only did uh, Luke uh, travel to investigate the claims and teachings of Jesus, but it reads as if he also traveled uh, with the Apostle Paul uh, at particular parts in, in this book. And so we're getting a, a window into the teachings and ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us all that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. The book of Acts is going to tell us all that Jesus continued to do as he reigned from the right hand of God. And so Jesus is very much alive. He is very much reigning. And what Luke is going to do through the book of Acts is to show us precisely how and what Jesus was up to. Acts chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria unto the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and now preaching of his word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, it is a, a joy to uh, open your word and to uh, proclaim the mysteries of God unto your people. Paul reminds us to renounce tampering and cunning and underhanded ways. It reminds us to Remember that we are commending God's word to the consciences of God's people. It's a weighty and beautiful calling. And so, Father, I pray for your spirit to enable my preaching, to enable our hearing. Father, make us doers of your word. Make us believers of your word. May we, as Paul prayed, taste and see and know that you are indeed good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, every year we meet with uh, our financial planner. And um, this year we were told that we needed to uh, have a will put in place in the event that the unforeseen happens. And um, that's a sobering way to begin your year. You may not make it through the, you know, just like really. But the importance of a will, the importance of those documents is that they become our final words, our final words to the courts, our final words to our children, that they matter. What do you want to happen in the event that the Lord brings you home? It's weighty, it's serious, it's, it's authoritative, it gives direction to our children, that they're able to see what we want for them and long for them. And in some sense, what we're reading this morning in the book of Acts is the final words of Jesus. That he actually, you see it in verses 7 through 8, he says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. In other words, as I am about to ascend, don't get a clock out and try to determine when I'm returning. That is not how I want you to spend your life. The angels have to tell him, hey, he'll be back. In my Terminator voice, right? Like, he's going to come back. So what are they to do in this present age? He gives them a mission, but he also tells them, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a person, a person who will be with you. In other words, what we're reading of all the things that Jesus could have said to the disciples, that what we just read, those are his last and final words. And they're to give shape to the disciples' identity and to their activity. He tells them, you will be my witnesses. That's a glorious and beautiful mission that he's giving to the disciples. And he's telling them that the Holy Spirit's going to be given, and he will enable you to do this. And so that's kind of how I want to look at our passage this morning. I want to look at it through these three ideas. One, mission important. And I want to look at mission impossible. And I want us to think about mission empowered, mission important. Now, this beautiful mission that Jesus is leaving is important because of who is giving it. Now, there is much debate on what type of genre of literature the book of Acts is. I think it's theological, historical narrative. In other words, the way that Luke writes is from a theological standpoint. This is about what God is doing in real history through the, the apostles that give way for the church, that I think that this is theological, historical narrative, but that doesn't mean that it can't have similarities to other genres that might have been popular in Luke's day. For example, speeches dominate the book of Acts. Why? Because in Hellenistic culture, it was a more of an oratorical and rhetorical culture. And so what you said mattered and how you built arguments matter and evidence matters. And so Acts is written, we're at the forefront. It's a lot of sermons and a lot of 
preaching and a lot of oratorical events, that's because I think Luke is being mindful of what's normal in his day. But we also learn that, that Acts was itself a type of genre. You might read Acts of, the, of Alexander the Great or Acts of Caesar Augustus. And these acts were composed to capture all of the important events that these historical figures did during their life. They were written in such a way to cast these men as deity-like. And so you would hear about their battles. You would hear about their wise sayings. You would hear about their military strengths. And these things would be composed in the acts And therefore, when people read these acts of Augustus or these acts of Alexander the Great, they would venerate them and honor them. And it's as if Luke is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can have acts of Augustus and acts of Alexander and and not have the acts of Jesus. He is way more important than those men. And so what Luke is doing is putting Jesus on the forefront and saying, hey, I know you out there are reading about these famous warriors, these famous kings, but there is a king who is the king of kings. And what I'm about to show you is his acts, things that he said, things that he did, things that he overcame. And what Luke is going to tell us in the opening chapters is that this king is so boss. He suffered and he died, and he was really dead, and he got up from the grave, and for 40 days he appeared to people, and he proved that he was not a ghost, but he was the same person that went into the ground. Now you tell me which one of your figures has done that. What do you do when someone has this much authority, this much power. You do whatever he tells you to. And that's the posture you see that, that, that Luke is writing here. So Theophilus, we think, is this, probably this financer. He's probably this guy who gives Luke the money to go travel. So he is an important person. In, in the book of Luke, he's called most excellent. So he, here's an important person. And and what Luke is doing in Acts is telling this person who's a God-fearer, who's important, who's weighty, like, wait a minute, there's somebody even more important and weightier than you, than anyone else, and his name is Jesus. Notice how Luke talks about Jesus. He's not asking or begging with people or pleading He gives commands through the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 2? Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them. He's not asking them, what do you want to do today? He's telling you, no, I order you. And I have the right to tell you what I want to tell you. But did you catch that? He commands them to wait. Look at verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power. He doesn't say you might. 
No, you will. Now, that word right there for witness, it's where we get our English word martyr. Now, that's important. Now, when you hear the word martyr, you probably think, okay, someone who dies. But that's not quite what it would have meant when Jesus used it. Now, think about someone who, think about a lawyer who is caught between a plaintiff and a defendant. There's a crime, an alleged crime. And, and what this lawyer wants is to find witnesses. And what do those witnesses do? I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And they are sworn under oath, and they're there to bear witness, to testify in the company of the courtroom, in the company of God, to the things they saw or didn't see. Were you at the scene of the crime? Yes. Did you see this? Yes. Or were you with the alleged criminal? Were they not at the scene of the crime? Yes, we were over here. In other words, the witness has to declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it's not hearsay. It's what we saw and what we experienced. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples You are summoned by me to be my witnesses. And you will tell the world what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have learned with your own person. You were there. And that's why in the next chapter, when they replace Judas, it has to be with someone who was with them. It can't just be a stranger who heard about it. No, the person has to be a witness. Now, as a consequence of witnessing, of truth-bearing, persecution will come. Stephen is going to be truth-bearing until stones crush him. Peter is going to be truth-bearing until he's imprisoned and crucified upside down. But that's a response. The persecution is a response to telling the truth about Jesus. That's the mission. The mission is important because of where it is to be carried out. He says Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria even until the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, you start right there in the city of God and the people of God. And you go out to Judea. And you go north to the Samaritans. And they're your enemies. And you tell the truth to your enemies. And then you go to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' way of saying every people group and every place, you stretch out a map and there is not a place that you can see on there where the Lord Jesus Christ does not want truth tellers telling the good news to real people. The mission is beautiful Because of what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. 
people are walking in darkness. They're hostile in mind. They're doing evil. They're alienated from God. And on top of living in a world where COVID runs rampant and we live in fear, on top of this, you mean to tell me that it, it, it will get worse if I'm not reconciled to God? That this fear will give way to agony and, and, and wrath? That's what's at stake, but, but that's not the only thing at stake. God's name is at stake. God told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. God told Abraham, through you, the world will be blessed. The nations will be blessed. And here's the thing. If the nations don't hear the good news, then God is a liar. He is not keeping his promise to, the, to, to Abraham and to Adam, if, it, if, if the gospel does not go far and wide, then he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And if the gospel does not go far and wide, then what Jesus has just done, offer his life as an atoning sacrifice to reconcile humans to God, to change their now and their eternities forever, then that too is for nothing. If it stays with the 120 people in this room in Acts chapter 1, if it stays with the 500 who perhaps saw him that Paul writes about, if it stays with the couple of thousand of people in Jerusalem and it does not make its ways to the highways and the byways, then it is for naught. That's what's at stake here. And Jesus says, this is where you come in. You. Humans. Know me. And who commune with me. I'm entrusting all of this. To you. So this week, I read Why We Can't Wait. It's written by Martin Luther King, Jr., Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And in the book, he's talking about why the Christian, peaceful, nonviolent protest in 1963 were essential. Now, in the book, right? He's, he's interacting with W.E.B. Du Bois and his philosophy and, and Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey. Then he talks about the black militant Muslim. And what King says is like, look, that's not the way. The way has to be Christian, it has to be peaceful, and it has to be nonviolent. Now, why does he say it has to be Christian? King actually says we can't fight fire with fire, we can't bear arms because we will lose our souls. And he goes on to talk about why it needs to be peaceful and nonviolent. And here's what he writes. A nonviolent army 
has a magnificent universal quality about it. To join an army that trains its adherents in methods of violence, you must be a certain age. But in Birmingham, some of our most valued foot soldiers were youngsters, elementary pupils, teenage and high school students. For acceptance in armies that maim and kill, one must be physically sound, possessed of straight limbs and accurate vision. But in Birmingham, the lame and the crippled could, could and did join up. Al Hibbler, the blind singer who sang with Duke Ellington, would have never been accepted in the United States Army or any other army for that nation but he held a commanding position in our ranks. In Birmingham, doctors marched with window cleaners, lawyers demonstrated with laundresses, PhDs and no Ds were treated and were perfectly equal. You hear what he says? Can't catch that. That the beauty of a Christian, peaceful, nonviolent protest is that it was universal. You didn't have to have guns. You didn't have to see. You didn't have to be old. You didn't have to be smart. You didn't have to be educated. You didn't have to have means. All you needed to do, peaceful. Why do I say that? Let me let you in on a secret. The disciples were not formally trained. They did not go to seminary. You see, I think when we think about missionaries, what we think about is a Cyril Chavis who's gone to start RUF at Howard, who's been trained at RTS. We think about Joshua Savadawa, who is out on the Yakima Indian Reservation, who's been trained at RTS, and now he goes out there to the reservation to preach the good news. We think about these super trained people that we put in front of you on the fifth Sundays of the month and we slowly acquiesce into this idea to be a missionary for Jesus. It means I need to go do this and I need to be this and I need to have all of this. Let me let you in on some good news. Do you know Jesus? Have you been with him? Can you talk? Do you know people who don't know Jesus? If you answer yes to those four questions, you're in the movement. You can be two and get on this team. You can be four and be on this team. You can be crippled and blind and lame and still be a truth teller of God's amazing grace. Now that's a beautiful movement. We also learned that this mission is impossible. It's impossible for ordinary people. And I think Luke gives us a glimpse of it right there in verse 6. So Jesus is, is, is about to ascend and notice where they are in their headspace. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, so underline time, this present age, 
will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Underline Israel, right? So, so here's what they're thinking. Jesus, you've just defeated death. Are you about to do this big cataclysmic thing right here in Jerusalem and set up your throne? And will we be able to sit at your right hand and your left? Will you make this the land of our lands? Will you make us as Israel not just the land of our lands, but the people of all people? And Jesus is like, yo, y'all bugging. You tripping. That's not what's about to happen here. Don't you understand where we are in the present age? And here's a glimpse. I think they're filtering everything through a knowledge of God's word. When you hear these sermons Peter's about to preach, he's going to perfectly exegete the whole Old Testament. When you hear Philip with this Ethiopian eunuch, he's going to exegete Isaiah. And so it's not a matter of biblical knowledge. They're running their biblical knowledge through their own grid. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you're mistaken. Even when he tells them, he commands them, he orders them, hey, don't depart. Go and wait. That they're sitting here gazing at Jesus being taken up and two angels have to show up and say, hey, snap out of it. Didn't he just tell you what to go and do? And by the way, he's going to return. And I envision that as Jesus ascended, their hopes and dreams did as well. I think what Luke is showing us, that apart from what happens later in Luke, they are unable to do this. They lack their power to free themselves from this. They could see but dimly. I think Luke is saying that this great and beautiful mission is impossible to do in ordinary human strength. In the book, Mission Drift, it's written by Peter Greer and Chris Horst. They speak of how difficult it is for organizations to stay, what they call mission true. Now listen to what they write. Consider this mission statement of a well-known university. This is the mission statement to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Founded in 1636, this university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized Christian character formation in its students above anything else, and it rooted all of its policies and practices through a Christian worldview. This school served as a bastion of academic excellence and Christian distinction. And that mission was not from Dallas Theological Seminary, nor Wheaton College, might I add, RTS or Covenant. That was Harvard's mission statement. It began as a school to equip ministers to share the good news. Today, 
Harvard is an incredible institution with an unmatched reputation, but it no longer resembles its founding. Aside from the words on my diploma that read, Truth for Christ and the Church, little evidence suggests that it was a distinctly Christian school. At the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Mueller, former president of Johns Hopkins University, did not mince words. The bad news is that this university has become godless. You hear that? And several decades later, a man named, by the name of Elihu Yale donated significant funds to start Yale University in response to what Harvard was not becoming. And, 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 and Yale's motto was not just truth like Harvard, but lux et veritas, light and truth. But today, neither Harvard nor Yale resembles the universities their founders envisioned. And they push it a bit further. They talk about the Franciscan food banks called the Mounts of Piety. In the Middle Ages, the church sponsored a charity similar to modern-day urban food banks. It was created as an alternative to long sharks. These Mounts of, of, of Piety helped poor people manage their meager incomes. These charities provided low interest rate loans to poor families, ensuring that there was enough food on the table. These institutions were the lifeblood of poor European peasants. You want to know what they are today? Pawn shops and check cashing places. You hear that? And they say our, our, our issue is not with Harvard or Yale today. It's what the institutions are not. Their founders were unmistakably clear in their goals, academic excellence, and Christian formation. Today, they do something very different from their founding purpose. What really happened to Harvard and Yale is the reality of mission drift. They go on to say the zeal and the beliefs of founders are insignificant safeguards. There is no immunity, no matter how concrete your mission statement is. Organizations are made up of individuals and individuals are foiled with pride and sin and allured by success. And we concluded that this unspoken crisis, it isn't an organizational problem. It's a human problem. Mission drift would not be a problem if humans weren't involved. But alas, all organizations, every last one of them, have humans at the helm. Y'all hear that? It doesn't matter how passionate the founder was. When you entrust this mission to humans, we have a tendency to mess it up and to deviate. Do you think the disciples are different? They're already showing us their hand. This could have been a train wreck 
Jesus entrusts them with this mission. They, they don't go to Samaria. They don't go to the ends of the earth. They kick their feet up and get comfortable in Jerusalem. That is how the story would have been written had humans being the ones writing it. This is us. We'll mess it up. Our sin, our pride, our prejudice, our distraction, our fear of men, our people loving. We will be silent when we ought to speak. We will be selective with who we share the good news with. We will share half-truths or no-truths of God's word left to ourselves. And here's the good news. The mission is empowered, which is our last point. What will give? How will people be rescued? How will God's name be cleared? How will Jesus's atoning work be celebrated and believe they need power? Ordinary humans, even though they're biblically literate, can't do what Jesus is calling them to do. They need more. We need more. And that's why Jesus says, don't stare at me. You go and wait. You will receive power for this extraordinary and beautiful mission when an extraordinary and beautiful person comes. Who's coming? Who will be sent by Jesus? Who is the one promise of the Father? It's Holy Spirit. In our passage, he's talked about being promised by the Father. You can check that with Luke 24, Luke, Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 4, Acts 2, 33, that they're saying this Holy Spirit has been promised by the Father. But look at over at Acts 2, 33, he's being poured out by the Son, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, has poured out this that yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus in Luke 24, 48 says, you are my witnesses of my death, resurrection, and the proclaiming of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. You see what's happening? The Father has made a promise. I will divinely enable my people to obey. And I will make good on that promise when my son ascends to heaven. And we will pour out the third person of the Trinity. John baptized with water. I'm going to pour out Holy Spirit upon you. The strong wind that comes from heaven that the disciples hear, it points us back to this Jesus who was taking up to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And so all we see happening in Acts evidences that Jesus is not only alive, that salvation has been accomplished, but he's reigning and conquering and saving and growing his church through empowered people who proclaim his name. And in our passage, Jesus gives us hints to what the, ordin what the Holy Spirit will do to ordinary people when he indwells them. 
Remember that, that Luke and Acts are to be read really as part one and part two. And so if we go back to Luke chapter nine, let's take a glimpse at what they did with their power. In Luke 9, he called the 12 and gave them power over authority and demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom. And then right down there in Luke 9, chapter 54, we get a glimpse that, yeah, they went and preached and, yeah, they healed. But they wanted to do something else with their power. When they went into a Samaritan village and the people rejected them, they turned to Jesus do you want us to rain down fire? He's like, what? You preaching the gospel and now you want to burn them up? What, which one is it? That's us. And Jesus rebukes them. Now is not the age for fire. Judgment is coming later. But now ain't the time for this type of judgment y'all trying to do. Something happens. They're going to be transformed. It's like, it's like Spider-Man, Peter Parker, or maybe Miles Morales. They're kind of like ordinary kids, teenagers. Kind of puny and, and, and not impressive. And then this radioactive spider bites them. And all of a sudden, they become these colossal figures. That they have these superpowers. And the, yeah, they're, they're kind of still like themselves, but they're a better version of themselves. That, that, that's what's happening here in the book of Acts. That, that, that God is going to take these ordinary, sinful, and cowardice divided men and women and there's going to be an encounter and they're going to be different they're going to be changed and that's exactly what happens that in acts 1 through 6 the church of jerusalem grows and many priests even became obedient because of the priest's word Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed, and then persecution comes in Acts 8 and 9, and guess what happens? They go through Judea and Samaria. And Philip chops it up with an Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 10 through 28, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. In other words, what Acts is going to do, it's going to show us how these men and were changed and then they actually become and do all that Jesus said they would do. Now, why? Holy Spirit. He's responsible. And here is what he did for them. He gave them power. Look at the top front of your bulletin. He gave them power to proclaim the good news to all people in all places, despite 
persecution. We talk a lot about what it means to be indwelled by the Spirit, or being full of the Spirit. What Acts is going to show us over and over again what the Spirit will do in the hearts of God's people is give you boldness to proclaim the good news in this present age. You will not waste your shot. You will not waste your life in this present age. You and I will become bold for Jesus and we'll proclaim that news. All people, all places, no matter what happens to us. And who will get praise for that? Jesus will. What would it look like this week? Walk in the spirit. And to say, Lord, I've not been bold. I've been afraid. And I've made excuses. And, and I've not uttered the mysteries of God to people. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for that. What would it look like to, to walk out of here and to see this world and this present age afresh and anew? Maybe it's coworkers. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's strangers. What would it look like to walk by the Spirit in this way? I'll close with this. Steve and I officiated a wedding yesterday, and it's always exciting to hear how couples meet. And so this, 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 is, one of, this, this is at the top of, one of, top of my list, right? So the bride called who she thought was an old friend. Had a number in her phone. She was calling about to go meet, this, meet with this friend. And on the other end was not her friend. Her friend had changed numbers. And so she's on the phone talking to who she thinks is her friend. And finally, this man says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you, you have the wrong number. And she's embarrassed, and they laugh, and they continue to talk for a little. And then he asks her a question. He says, well, ma'am, may I ask you a question? Do you know Jesus? They got married yesterday, y'all. <laughs> That's how they met. That's a beautiful love story. But you want to know what's even more impressive about it? This is a stranger. This guy... Somebody calls the wrong number. And he's just like ready. You know Jesus? Because if you don't, I'm happy to talk to you about him. Isn't that beautiful? Just the willingness. I know how I act when I get numbers that call my phone, and it ain't like that. <laughs> what would it be like? Share good news in this present age, empowered by the Spirit, all people, all places, 
despite persecution. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the way in which you tell us what you would have us to do with our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful and glorious mission. And we pray for power from your spirit to do all that you've called us to do. So help us, God. Amen.